Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, today we have another collaboration with Audible Bleeding uh, where we are interviewing Dr. Todd Rasmussen about uh, venous abdominal trauma. It's a continuation of the arterial abdominal trauma discussion we had earlier. Uh, but first, just want to give you a few updates about Behind the Knife. We're into our new season this year. Uh, we have uh, some exciting things coming out for you. We have mock orals. We're going to have both general surgery mock orals for how to take them over Zoom in case that is the new feature for us. We're also going to have uh, subspecialty mock orals, whether it's colorectal or vascular. Um, we're going to have some uh, lots of mock orals for you guys, and we're going to have some new Absite episodes out. Um, if you guys have any people that you want to hear on the podcast this year, uh, we're kind of making our schedule now, so get in touch with us. You can reach us at btkpodcast at gmail.com, bravo tango kilo podcast at gmail.com. We also have uh, an ECMO series coming up with uh, Patrick Georgioff, who's taking the lead with that. Him and a cardiothoracic surgeon are going to teach us uh, what we need to know about ECMO, which is kind of especially pertinent in the COVID era that we are in. And we would like to welcome Michael Vu to Behind the Knife. He's a resident at Madigan going into his research year, and he's going to be joining the podcast for the next year. So welcome, Michael Vu. We're excited to have all your talents on the podcast. Today's podcast is in collaboration with Audible Bleeding. If you want to hear more vascular-specific podcasts, go check out Audible Bleeding. It's a fantastic podcast based out of New York. And this episode is a continuation of our abdominal vascular trauma episode with him where we discuss arterial injuries, and today we'll be discussing venous injuries. Dr. Rasmussen is a colonel in the United States Air Force and is a professor of surgery and associate dean of research at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences and an attending vascular surgeon at Walter Reed Military Medical Center. Thank you, Dr. Rasmussen, for coming back on uh, the joint podcast to help us learn about trauma. Sure. It's a pleasure, and I, I look forward to some of our discussion. Thank you. We're lucky enough to have one of my partners, Dr. Adham uh, El-Musli. He's a chief resident at Cornell, and he'll be helping us with this interview. Thanks, Adham. Thank you. I'm happy to nerd out about some surgical technique with a master here. <laughs> so we're going to drive straight into abdominal venous injuries, and we're going to keep it simple here. When we're thinking of abdominal venous injuries, we're going to think of three types. You have your IVC, you have your portal vein, and you have your superior mesenteric vein. So we're going to uh, break these down in order and discuss the approaches to exposing it and fixing it. So of these, Dr. Rasmussen, what, what do you see most commonly? That's a great question as to which we see most commonly. I think they're all uh, relatively uncommon because of the frequency of blunt trauma, especially in the civilian setting. I suspect that blunt liver injury and the relationship between the liver and the vena cava uh, is probably the most common. And are isolated injuries to the, the IVC, is there any non-operative management that's amenable for the IVC? So I think, yes, I think there's a, a number of types of injury scenarios be amenable to non-operative management. We just mentioned very briefly the retrohepatic caval injuries. And in fact, most of the time, if uh, the patient can be stable and, and doesn't have other associated injuries that require exploring that area of the vena cava, oftentimes retrohepatic vena cava injuries should be managed non-operatively. Um, and that's, of course, because of the difficult 
nature of exposing that area of the of the vena cava and 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 the, the high risk of causing you know more bleeding with with that exposure because the venous system the vena cava is a low pressure system infrarenal vena cava injuries suprarenal vena cava injuries or even suprahepatic can be well tolerated the non-operative management because it's a low low pressure system but in particular, the retro, retro-hepatic portion, I think, is uh, particularly amenable to non-operative management. But you kind of touched on this a little bit, but when, when we talk about the IBT, we sort of divide it into four segments anatomically because each of them has their own implications and difficulties. The infrarenal segment, the suprarenal segment, and then the retrohepatic and suprahepatic segments of the vena cava. I think it's probably worth going through each of those segments and discussing a briefly exposure, and I think we should spend some more time on retrohepatic, but discussing exposure and then strategies for repair versus ligation and their implications in each of these segments. Okay. Yeah. So I guess we'll start with the infrarenal segment of the vena cava. It's probably the most uh, easy to expose. This The infrarenal uh, vena cava segment is best approached through a right visceral rotation, meaning uh, bringing the, the right colon, the cecum, and, and the viscera up cephalad in the retroperitoneal space to expose, well, to expose the vena cava in the inferenal segment. And that maneuver at its proximal most extent will, will expose the, the renal veins, the fourth portion of the duodenum and the pancreatic head. So that's, that's the best way to expose that. And then I think Repair options there it depends upon the the severity of the injury. If it is uh, you know partial injury to the vena cava, then hopefully primary repair. You know the vena cava is quite large; it has a large capacity, and controlling that and and and, and repairing an injured segment primarily with with four uh, O proline uh, suture, for example, is is pretty well tolerated. If one feels like they're going to narrow the vena cava significantly, then that's a different consideration, which includes then should the vena cava just be ligated as opposed to trying to repair the vena cava uh, and leave it narrowed, which then would predispose it to uh, uh, thrombosis and potentially uh, life-threatening thromboembolism. So that's sort of this infrarenal segment. I mean, the when we could talk an hour on this segment of the vena cava, control is challenging because there's it bleeds black blood in in large quantities and oftentimes controlling proximally and distally is not enough because there are lumbar vessels the lumbar veins that are back behind that if you know one doesn't control one of the large lumbar vessels that's coming into the vena cava posteriorly you can have all the proximal and distal control that you want and you still can't see anything because you've missed a huge lumbar vessel that's, you know, lumbar vein that's feeding from the backside. So one has to be mindful of that and try to either identify that and, and get it with a, with a clamp of some sort or get around it with a, a, a vessel loop or something to control it. As we have said in other of our discussions, none of these operations or these techniques take place in isolation. They've got to be done in close communication with anesthesia and assure that anesthesia is not only adhering to the principles of damage control resuscitation with you, but they're also aware of these maneuvers, whether it's losing large volumes of black blood from the vena cava or maybe ligating the vena cava in the inferior segment, which is going to significantly reduce the inflow to the right heart. 
So two follow-up questions on the infrarenal cava. In general, you said you use a foral pulling to repair the cava. Do you have a specific needle? Probably a larger needle is better. And then the second question is, when you're doing an infrarenal cava ligation, do you think we should be empirically doing four compartment fasciotomies on these patients? Yeah, so really a good point about the needle size. So I think a 4-0 on an SH needle is imperative. So these are the subtle parts that I think before someone tackles this needs to have in mind. Generally, you need two large bore suckers. You know, you've got to have headlights. Uh, make sure you have hands, extra set of hands because, you know, you may only have one or two uh, shots at this, you know, controlling it and seeing where the bleeding's coming from. And to the best you can, don't waste one of those opportunities because what you're going to be able to do is control it with, for example, sponge stick or even your hand. So, you know, while you've got it controlled, then make sure you've got the right lights, the right suction devices, the right assistance, blood in the room, you know, all of those things. Take a deep breath and get all that squared away. To your point of a needle, the point here that we're talking about for your listeners is don't use too small of a needle. Uh, a common mistake is uh, this has got to be a dainty needle. It's got to be small because they're sewing on the vena cava, maybe a 5 or you know, 6 proline. I'll put it on an RB1 or C1 needle. These are small needles. And what happens is the, that needle, you can't see it in all of the blood. So a, an SH needle is really designed with a, a sort of a a large arc that really can literally go underneath your finger and a 4-0 proline will go on an SH needle. So absolutely. As far as the empiric performance of four compartment fasciotomies with ligation of the vena cava, I'm going to take a pass on that and say it depends. I think it depends upon how much resuscitation the patient's received, meaning if they've received large volumes of fluid, they're physiologically not well, and you know you anticipate a large sort of significant recovery burden, then yes, I would probably do uh, fasciotomies of the lower extremities and elevate those legs and, and do everything you can to keep the pressure down. In contrast, if a patient's physiologically pretty well, that was a relatively small resuscitation, then you know perhaps not. I think it, it just depends. But you, you should be definitely mindful of it. There's no doubt. And uh, if you don't do the fasciotomies, recognize that you got to keep an eye on the leg and keep the legs elevated. So, uh, Dr. Rasmussen, I have to thank you. We actually kind of talked about managing IVC injuries in our first episode. So, there's, this is our third episode total. We've covered lower extremity injuries. We've covered abdominal aortic vascular trauma, and today's our venous. But on our first episode, um, we talked about using the large uh, 4-0 needle. And about a week after that episode, we got called into a internal hemipelvectomy case, which I didn't even know was a case where the orthopedic surgeons were resecting this massive sarcoma off the pelvis and basically resecting half of the pelvis. And they got into to massive bleeding. Basically, they had gotten into the crotch of the IVC and had just exsanguinating hemorrhage every time they removed their hands. And using the large 4 needle, the large needle and the 4 suture was really helpful, A, because like you said, it helped you see it through all the bleeding. And then the thing that's nice about the 4-0 is you can really kind of crank down on it and, t- and push your knot down there without worrying about it breaking. And when you're in, a, in this case with lots of bleeding yeah. and there's five people around the operating table, I found it really helpful. So uh, I thought straight to that episode right when we were in that case. Good. That was helpful. You mentioned in your book chapter, which I also have seen in some liver cases where injuries to the cave are made that's helpful is when 
uh, you're placing these sutures into the vena cava if, if you're doing a figure of eight or a figure of 16, placing the first suture and then lifting on both of the strands of the suture up in the air to elevate the hole and get some control and then maintain that tension as you place the rest of the sutures. Yeah, that's a, an important part. And I think, you know, I would go back to the fact that, you, you know, you're only going to get one or two, maybe three chances at this. So, you know, don't skive. <laughs> I mean, don't be afraid to take too big a bite. I mean, you, you got to get substance of the vessel and you got to get the bleeding controlled or you're just not going to get to mm -hmm. the next step. So, yeah. So making that first pass that you think, well, this could be a figure of eight. It, it's a little bit behind. It's not complete. I, I'm not advocating for taking Hail Mary. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that, but, but the point is be definitive about your suture placement and, and go ahead and get full thickness bites of the vessel wall, then pull up on that and and that may help you expose, uh, you know, each, each injury is a little bit different, but try to uh, recognize that in order to get through it to that next step, you're going to have to, to get uh, full, full thickness bites of, of even the vein, you know, and it, in fact, especially the vein, right? Because it's going to be more prone to tear. So you, you really can't skimp on, on these, uh, on these, uh, these suits. And so once you go above the renal veins, the kind of the ability to, to ligate completely changes and everywhere above that. So can we talk a little bit about the anatomy of the suprarenal and then just briefly discuss retrohepatic and superhepatic IVC? Right. So I guess we didn't really mention the but the reason that the infrarenal ligation can be tolerated, it's not ideal, but it, it patients will survive with ligating the infrarenal is because one has not disrupted the the venous outflow of the kidneys. So with an infrarenal ligation, flow through the left and right renal veins is maintained and, and therefore kidney function is still preserved. That, as you reference, changes when the injury is above the renal veins in the suprarenal segment of the IBC. And in those cases, you're right, ligation really isn't an option. You know, this is a very small segment. Uh, this is only a two or three centimeter segment of the IBC you know, between the superior aspect of the uh, renal vein and, and then the initiation of the drainage of the hepatic veins, you know, the retrohepatic. So this is a very small segment. And, you know, I think that if there's an injury in this segment, it should be, you know, attempts should be made to primarily repair it. If, if you find yourself operating on it, this also gets in this area where it really could also be a, almost considered retrohepatic. And certainly if these are blunt injuries or from a blunt mechanism, you may not want to find yourself operating on that if the patient will give you that option. So if you do find yourself needing to operate on this, obviously you you need to mobilize the liver to expose this part of the of the vena cava. What considerations do you need to take into account before mobilizing the liver? And can you walk us through your technique in doing so? Yeah, I think effective mobilization of liver cannot be overstated how important that is because to, to get enough control of the vena cava in this segment really requires dividing the attachments of the liver to the diaphragm and, and getting the liver, well, mobile so that, it, so that it can be moved cephalad and allow exposure of this segment. So I think what to be mindful of is, is in this area, this, this is just a very difficult area because inevitably there are lumbar veins coming from the backside of, of this aspect of the vena cava and inevitably to, to control the, the, the 
cephalad portion of this area, there's likely to be a couple of hepatic veins that are coming into this area. So you know, it is, you know, mobilization of liver, I think, is very important to, to allow exposure. I think we mentioned, I guess, to start the, the medial visceral rotation of the right colon and the head of the pancreas. All of that has to really be, I think, maybe to your point, make sure that that exposure is also very thorough so that the the, the third and fourth portion of the duodenum or the head of the pancreas are lifted up off of this segment so that one can really expose and, and see. As we said at the outset, it's difficult to sew what you can't see. You know, and, and I think one point that we haven't emphasized enough here that you emphasize in your book substantially is the fact about really being careful about your decision to mobilize the liver and how you can really make your situation worse. Can you touch on that? There are some injuries where actually leaving the liver of course, retrohepatic. If you get into the retrohepatic segment, then in those situations, often leaving the liver in place is, is ideal because it's it's what hemostasis may be attainable is, is by you know, don't unroof the tear in the vena cava behind the liver. So in those cases, actually leaving the liver and not mobilizing it might be uh, beneficial and, and should be the route that's pursued. In contrast, if this is injury to the to the super renal segment of the IVC, it's a longitudinal tear, and and you sort of see it that it's there. It's not a retropatic segment, then, uh, and you see the bleeding is from below the liver in the vena cava. Then, those situations and mobilizing the liver to a degree is actually maybe necessary so that you can control above the of the injury of the hepatic veins. The, the superhepatic uh, vena cava is you know that that is. And the, the fourth portion. So we've talked about the infrarenal, the suprarenal, the retrohepatic, and then the suprahepatic. That is exposing that. There's also a pretty short segment there from the last of the renal veins and the phrenic veins that drain into the vena cava right at the cruis, and, and then the, the right atrium of the heart and the pericardium. So that's a pretty short segment there. To expose that area, one needs to really divide up along the xiphoid to really get the costal margins to open up, uh, to just go from a tip of the xiphoid to the pubis, often it is not enough. Uh, really, uh, in my experience, takes a, a concerted effort to, to divide up along the, the edge of the xiphoid, two to three centimeters cephalad, separating the xiphoid from the right costal margin to really open that up and show the all of the diaphragm and, and at the base of that, of course, will be the vena cava, and that's sort of that fourth segment, if you will, that we have discussed of, of the vena cava. Hey, Dr. Rasmussen, at least in a lot of my training, I've been taught with a large bleeding IVC to get proximal and distal control sponge sticks. In your book, you have some precautions that you mention against this technique, and, and how do you recommend approaching a kind of a bleeding inferior vena cava? So I think the tenant of the sponge stick is, is, is the same whether you use the sponge stick or hand or a finger or another instrument, you know, it's, it's, I think it's the starter, right? You're trying to, I got to start somewhere and there's this black blood welling up. I, I've got a pressure on it. So that pressure can be applied with a sponge stick or a hand. I think what one recognizes is that whatever you use for that initial application of pressure, you're going to have to refine your dissection. You're going to have to refine your exposure. And then you're going to have to refine that manual pressure mechanism because you can't operate. Everybody's got their hand in the wound. 
It may not be bleeding, but you can't be there forever and you can't see to actually dissect and, and expose and operate. So I think the the sponge sticks are fine. I think so we don't skip over it. If if this is a retroperitoneal hematoma from the infravena cava, this has got to be exposed, in my experience, through visceral rotation of the right colon, the cecum, and the right colon uh, up to the patient's left, exposing the vena cava. You won't be able to manage this hematoma by going through the mesentery of the right colon, for example. That's So that's a, a premise that, that this injury has got to be managed with a medial visceral rotation of the right colon and cecum uh, cephalad into the patient's left to expose this injury. Even if you start out with, with a sponge stick or manual pressure before that maneuver, let anesthesia catch up, get blood in the room, but eventually you're going to have to mobilize that cecum and, and right colon up and to the patient's left. You know, I think from there, you know, these technical tricks that you're referring to, I think trying to get the application to something smaller than the sponge stick. So oftentimes something that's referred to as a kitner or a peanut, if you will, those are lower profile. You can see around them often. You can sew around them. They're smaller than the, the sponge stick. And oftentimes use of those, which is really the similar principle of manual pressure is, I think, useful. You know, I think while you have the sponge sticks in to the degree that one can get proximal and distal control of some of the large tributaries feeding the injury area, the iliac veins, then that may be useful as well. The other technical tenants are you're going to need probably two large bore suction devices, lights, blood in the room. Don't overlook those things. As we have said in a couple of our other segments, you know, this is the type of injury where you may only get one or two chances at this. You, you want to make those those chances as good as possible. So, you know, the, the sponge sticks are fine, but they're only going to be a starter and, and you're going to have to refine your your manual pressure to something smaller so that you can dissect and expose so you can actually find and then and then address. So we were talking about retrohepatic cable injuries and a technique that we didn't discuss that may be useful in situations where there's blood welling up from behind the liver and it's not clear where it's coming from is uh, total vascular isolation or total vascular exclusion. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, it's a, a good point. And I think we haven't mentioned that. And of course, that is trying to isolate all the flow to the liver and reduce bleeding ultimately from the cava and the confluence of the of the hepatic vein. So, you know, if, if one uh, thinks about the, the inflow into the liver, right, so that it would be the portal vein, which is probably 70 to 80 percent of the, the total flow. So trying to isolate the portal vein and being able to control at least and isolate the porta hepatis and, uh, and the portal vein the hepatic artery through what's called a Pringle maneuver. So that's the that's really the inflow to the liver. And then as far as that segment of the vena cava, controlling you know the vena cava and the renal veins below that injured segment, the, the other portion of inflow. So going through those steps to isolate what is inflow into the liver and that injured segment of cava where the confluence of the hepatic veins is, that's sort of the the, the key tributaries that need to be accounted for in that maneuver. And then when you're above the injury in the suprahepatic cava, are you getting control uh, in the area of the confluence of the hepatic veins below the diaphragm, or do you find that you need to go into the chest and get control of the cava in the chest? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think when doing total hepatic isolation, the, the one 
segment, which is the suprahepatic segment of the vena cava, I tend to cheat. Uh, the question was, do you go into the chest to control that segment or can you do it through the abdomen? I always do it through the abdomen. But when I say I cheat, I suspect by the time that I have done it, I've divided the xiphoid up along the costal margin and, and almost started what amounts to opening the chest through the abdomen because you're you're exactly right. You have to get um, pretty high and, and, and using some deep, what are referred to as long renal vein retractors, the wily renal vein retractors that are handheld, those can go down onto the cruise as it covers the vena cava and, and you're basically in the chest. You're just in the chest through the superior most aspect of of the abdomen. I can't emphasize in those situations how important it is to have released the, the hepatic attachments to that portion of the diaphragm and then really spread those costal margins out. You know, the costal margins, they tend to enclose around the abdomen. That's what they do. But by dividing the xiphoid three to four centimeters uh, cephalad, it's often overlooked, but that really allows you to almost suspend the patient with retractors under the costal margins. And that really, in a way, puts you in the chest, although you're there through the peritoneal cavity. And just for completeness sake, to totally cover total hepatic vascular exclusion, if you still have bleeding after getting the superhepatic and infrahepatic control and the Pringle, is there an option to prevent any further flow? I'm alluding to the point in your book uh, where you talk about in this very rare situation, you can do a supercelic aortic clamp to help identify the injury, but the patients are unlikely to survive this. Correct. I mean, I think there's a couple of there's a couple of damage control steps. Uh, you can certainly clamp the aorta to see if that helps. I mean, I think that's absolutely uh, a great point, and I, I didn't mean to overlook that. If nothing else, oftentimes clamping the aorta is needed to support left ventricular, you know, afterload for. For a period of time because these patients are in rough shape so you may need to clamp the aorta as a resuscitative maneuver anyway and you may see that that helps or doesn't help the other the other situation is trying to then place that then bypasses you know from the basically from the inferior vena cava up into the right atrium you know these are very rare but that is a way to then bypass the the liver and allow uh, continued inflow right heart from the infrarenal segment is, is by using a shunt. So that has been described as the Schrock shunt and most commonly is described using a chest tube. And that can be um, uh, used as well as another sort of last, I don't want to say last, last ditch effort, but at that point, like clamping the aorta, you know, you're pretty well down on the list of things that you are, are, are trying to do. So does the Schrock shunt belong to the history books or is it uh, still a viable option? I think it uh, is still a viable option. I mean, it's extremely rare, but I would advise all surgeons to to learn about it and to understand uh, what it is. I, I think it's unlikely that we'll find ourselves in those situations, but any of the shunting techniques, the temporary shunts, uh, I think it's important to familiarize oneself with uh, with the the principles and and to have in mind the situation in which which it might be useful. So I don't think it's it's not any more condemned to the history books as any other you know uh, modality of temporary vascular shunting. Great. And so as we're starting to wrap up our venous episode, we've covered the four segments of the vena cava. And just to recap, that's our infrarenal, which we can repair, we can interposition, we can 
ligate if needed. And then we have our super renal, retrohepatic, and suprahepatic, which are quite challenging injuries, which we discussed in, in detail on kind of bailout maneuvers for those. Now we're going to talk about our portal vein, which also includes our superior mesenteric vein and options in this situation. So obviously, if possible, we're going to you know repair an injury. And obviously, like we've said many times, these injuries do not happen in isolation. There's probably multiple other injuries to the pancreas and celiac artery and who, who knows what else. But can we just discuss, if you have a portal vein injury, you're probably in a pretty catastrophic situation. Um, can, can you ligate it? Can patients tolerate this? I think that's going to be tough. So I think, I mean, I suppose they can tolerate it. And like any damage control vascular scenario, ligation is is an option, you know, and it may be necessary. But I think ligating the main portal vein carries with it a, a very high mortality. So I would, if, if I would consider, gosh, you know, temporary vascular shunting, if at all possible, although that's obviously pretty rare. If it's ligated initially as a damage control maneuver, is just trying to get things stopped, then I would get the patient resuscitated and then I would try to reconstruct it, you know, because I don't think long-term the ligated portal vein is, is going to, it's very unlikely to be survivable. So if, for example, let's ligate it, let's get the bleeding stopped, let's get uh, another set of hands in here. Okay, we've, we've got the bleeding stopped. It looks like the portal vein's now ligated. But let's you know, get the patient resuscitated a little bit, warmed up, and let's uh, let's look to now reconstruct uh, uh, the portal. And you mentioned in your chapter about you know for these injuries, it's very likely you may need to divide the pancreas if the the projectile hasn't divided it for you to help get better exposure to repair. One thing I thought was really interesting in your chapter is you discussed how there's very limited experience with these injuries and, and not a lot of follow-up. But the thought is that with our current anesthesia techniques and our open abdomen techniques, that these injuries may be survivable when they weren't in the past. Can you talk a little bit about the blood return from the splanchnic circulation and, and why it's important to discuss that with anesthesia and options if you do have to do an aggressive ligation or repair of this vessel? Well, I think if I understand your question, I mean, as, as we've, these torsovascular injuries are, are the most complex. And, and as we have discussed throughout our talk about vascular trauma, the reconstructive technique, whether it's a damage control technique or a definitive repair technique, needs to be done in conjunction with anesthesia and the resuscitation team. And that's to assure that, that, that the tenets of damage control resuscitation are are being pursued by the team, meaning blood and blood component replacement, prevention, coagulopathy, mitigation of acidosis, uh, optimization of ventilation, all of those things. So the, I think the more complex the vascular injury, the, the greater the consequences uh, with that vascular injury, the more important it is that we're communicating with the anesthesia team to let them know what we're doing and, and considering with regards to, in this case, these, uh, whether it's a portal vein injury or a superior mesenteric vein injury, it's, it's, it's important so that damage control resuscitation occurs with damage control surgery. One without the other is going to fail. If you do perfect damage control surgery, but you failed at the tenets of DCR, damage control resuscitation, it's not going to work uh, and vice versa. 
And I, so just to wrap up the, the portal vein and we kind of looping in the superior mesenteric vein into this, ligation is really not tolerated, but in a catastrophic situation, you can consider it as long as there's communication with anesthesia that 50% of the blood volume is going to be sequestered in the splanchnic circulation. And then with management of open abdomens and aggressive fluid resuscitation, there have been case reports of survival after portal vein lig- ligation. So Dr. Rasmussen, once again, we took you through um, a lot of vascular trauma today, and you were very patient with us and breaking every detail down. We really appreciate this, and we think our listeners will also. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Until next time, dominate the day.